All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and uh, as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and we're having a lot of fun these days with gold mining shares, I can assure you of that. You may want to check it out at uh, miningstocks.com to learn more about uh, my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. And Chen Lin, my partner, is also doing very well uh, with what is Chen buying, what is Chen selling. Go to miningstocks.com to sign up for either of our newsletters. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel, and also encourage you to send your questions and uh, ideas along to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. Uh, we do also want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for this week's show Trimetals Mining, Coral Gold Resources, RN Resources, Brazil Resources, and Columbus Gold. We do have a very busy schedule today, so we'll pop right to it. Um, I've titled today's show Alan Greenspan Suggests a Gold Standard. And Ron Paul responds, well, towards the end of today's show, at about 3.35 to be exact, New York time, uh, I will be playing part two of my interview with Ron Paul, which was uh, recorded on June 29th. Dr. Paul addressed comments by Alan Greenspan regarding Greenspan's concerns about inflation and his comments on Bloomberg Television recently, implying that a return to the gold standard would, might just be a good idea. So uh, my discussion with Dr. Paul will be aired, as I say, at about uh, 3.35 New York time. Um, and I have found the work, uh, though, beyond a doubt, the work of Michael Oliver, especially uh, as it relates to some of the things that Alan Greenspan said, his concerns about inflation. I found uh, Al, uh, Michael's uh, work on the T-bonds to be especially interesting, and uh, it has really caught my attention. Uh, one of, we, we are going to talk to Michael in about 10 or 12 minutes or so from now to ask him what he's seeing now in the T-bond market because if the T-bond market is if it's, if it's in a blow-off phase as Michael suggests you uh, after a blow-off phase you get a reverse action which would mean interest rates would rise well what's going to happen in a market like this one an over-levered extremely leveraged global um, economy if interest rates start to rise, and uh, what might that mean for the future? How might that relate to inflation? These are some of the ideas we want to talk talk about uh, with Michael. Uh, and actually, I'm going to, um, in just a minute or two here, I'm going to listen to uh, a hyperinflationist, uh, John Williams, uh, talk to us about his views on both Michael's remarks, or Michael's view on the markets, as well as Alan Greenspan's discussion, too. Um, 
you know, Alan Greenspan is, is worrying about impending inflation. He's looking at M2 as a as a uh, as a warning signal that we could be heading towards some significant inflation. Well, that doesn't seem to wash very well with a bond market that is hitting uh, new highs and interest rates that are collapsing. If interest rates are collapsing, how could we be looking at inflation in the future? Well, you know, um, we're, we want to talk to uh, Michael Oliver about his views on the commodity markets as that might relate to inflation. Uh, we're going to hear Dr. Paul's response to Alan Greenspan, but right now, I want to ask my engineer to go ahead and play a clip. I actually recorded John Williams to get his take on his views on hyperinflation with respect to the recent remarks by Alan Greenspan and also uh, Michael Oliver's work. So uh, go ahead and, and please play my discussion with, um, with John Williams this weekend. Thank you, John, for taking time uh, to take my call today. You've been known for your hyperinflation call. While it has taken longer, I suspect, than you initially anticipated, there are several factors, in my view, that seem to suggest that we may be getting much closer now to what you have been expecting, given your view that it will be a dollar collapse that triggers hyperinflation in the U.S. I believe that's what you've said in the past. And uh, not only in the U.S., but I think you believe it will be a global phenomenon let me tell you what I think, and, and then I would like to get your response, and also to get your own thoughts as to where the global economy is now with respect to your call for hyperinflation. First, let me say Michael Oliver, uh, who is on this show frequently, in fact, will be following you in just a few minutes. His uh, structural analysis, uh, momentum structural analysis, I find is second to none when it comes to picking major turning points for for major markets and smaller markets, too. But recently, he made the call that uh, we're in or entering a blow-off phase for the T-bond. In other words, we're going to see the 30-year U.S. Treasury uh, go to levels that are just outrageously high, and that means interest rates will go to levels that are outrageously low. And I'm, given Michael's history and also the performance since he made that call, I'm pretty much taking that as a given. And then he notes that once you get a blow-off in a market, you always get the opposite. You know, the, the market reaches its peak and then it and then it reverses which then would mean of course we're going to start seeing higher interest rates now you can only imagine higher interest rates in a global economy that is so over levered as this one is uh, will be a disaster ron paul told me a few weeks ago that will be the end that will be the end game he said when that happens it will be all over if rates begin to rise just a little bit i would think it would cause trouble and you can see the equity markets collapsing i think and you could see uh, the debt markets also really taking a hit a big hit uh, if the if the t-bond market takes a hit i can only imagine what happens to the higher uh, to the junk bond market so you know, at that point, then, in my view, is the federal government or the uh, central banks will have nothing left to do but to perhaps issue enormous amounts of money, helicopter money, handed out to the masses, perhaps, so that they will start to spend money. And then I would think the dollar will be lost, the dollar, the confidence in the dollar, the confidence in the system, a massive rise in inflation because the dollar loses its purchasing power. What are your thoughts about that scenario? Is that is that a viable uh, outcome with the way things are shaping up now? I, I think we're heading in that uh, general direction. Um, indeed, I've been looking for a hyperinflation here to kick in the, before this, but there are a variety of things that have happened, very unusual circumstances. The key point of which was back in 2008 um, when the banking system was uh, literally on the brink of collapse. They weren't kidding about that. At that point in time, the uh, Federal Reserve, the Treasury, uh, U.S. government decided they would do whatever they had to do to keep the system from collapsing. 
the Fed's primary function in life is to keep the banking system afloat. It's not to keep the economy growing at a certain pace uh, or inflation at a certain level. They've got to keep the banks going. So what they did was a quantitative easing, which did very little, if anything, to help the economy. It's never designed to help the economy. It's helped to keep the banking system afloat. All the uh, treasuries they bought out had the effect, actually, of monetizing about 75% of the the U.S. Treasury, uh, the current debt issuance at the time. Uh, The Treasury's having some issues as well with the economy. And um, it uh, it worked well from the standpoint of providing liquidity to uh, to the Treasury, Mm -hmm. uh, providing liquidity to the banking system. It didn't do anything for the average guy. did nothing to help the economy. Um, At the same time, the the dollar uh, was dropping, which... uh, uh, tended to be inflationary, but they wanted to pull that around. They wanted to draw some cash into the dollar. So what they had to do is to make people think that interest rates are going to rise. They did pull back from quantitative easing to the extent uh, that they uh, stopped purchasing treasuries. They didn't mm-hmm. liquidate what they held. They keep rolling those over. And then they uh, notched interest rates higher back in December by a quarter point. And all that's going to happen is going to be a quarter point every couple of months. And all that now has disappeared. The problem is the economy. Wow. Uh, the, the, the economy collapsed um, in, literally into 2009, and then it, uh, it never really recovered despite the headline reporting. Uh, and now it's beginning to turn down again. And we're seeing that in a number of indicators. And, and the Fed sees that. Uh, the problem, although they'd like to have the economy strong, is that this also means intensified liquidity problems for the banking system. The banking system's not out of the woods. And uh, with the other problems around the world, and uh, China, Japan, uh, South Korea, uh, not buying U.S. Treasuries, you have some of the, something of a big issue here for the U.S. Treasury going forward with its funding needs, because with a, a, an intensifying uh, recession, um, their revenues are going to be down, their spending's going to be up, the budget deficit widens, they have to borrow more money. So the happy solution, although it's not so happy, is that in, where the Fed made the decision back in 2008 to save the system, um, they're going to continue to do so. That means they're going to have to revert back to quantitative easing, buying more treasuries. And where the, all the hype and the talk about, oh, we're backing off the quantitative easing, we're raising rates, that, that helped to prop the dollar. But when it's clear we're going back to, uh, back to the... Uh, quantitative easing, you're going to see heavy selling against the dollar. And with that, you're going to see a spark, excuse me, a sharp spike in interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, the direct uh, inverse relationship between uh, the, uh, the value of the dollar and uh, what happens to oil prices. Um, the dollar uh, strengthens as it had um, until, until recently. That tends to knock oil prices down. But when the dollar starts to weaken, oil prices rise, gasoline prices rise, that starts to give you um, a, a good basic underlying uh, inflation rate in the consumer inflation, mm-hmm. and, and one factor builds on another, and, 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 and you're off to the races. In, in response to that, if the Fed goes to the quantitative easing, which I think is what they're going to do, forget, forget a hike in rates again, you're going to, right. they're going to be moving into quantitative easing possibly by the election, if not probably shortly after the election that will have the effect of uh, uh, scaring investors out of the dollar. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the immediate reaction, what's the Fed doing? This? Be buying treasuries, that would knock down the interest rates, which is mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. But when the 
uh, inflation starts to rise, the market forces um, are, are, are in the bond market are killed by inflation, higher inflation. Uh, really try so it actually gives you the scenario that you're, you're looking at there yeah exactly and so the markets will rule over uh, the Fed and, and then won't there be a tremendous loss of confidence in the Fed I would think and in the dollar and wouldn't that very likely turn over the velocity rate if people start to have a loss of confidence in the dollar I can remember John in the 70s when interest rates were rising the Fed was trying to tighten and they continued to rise this is sort of the scenario that you're describing potentially the Fed could try to be uh, accommodating, but they can't accommodate fast enough to drive rates down. They, 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 they're, 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 they, they've lost. They lost the game back in two thousand eight, uh-huh. and they've never figured out how to get around that. The system should not have come to the brink in two thousand eight. We should not have gotten to that point, but we did. Yeah, and, and we got to that point because of a lot of mismanagement at the Federal Reserve and uh, various levels of the uh, federal government. But once there, they couldn't let the system fail. They just didn't have a way out. All the actions they took to prevent um, a collapse of the banking system were stopgap. They did, they, they did nothing or very little in terms of underlying fundamentals to address the, uh, the circumstances such as the, uh, the, the long-term solvency questions of the United States or, or the uh, contracting economy. They did very little to turn the economy. Yeah. Yet the, the economy is... Uh, is uh, is still in a is still uh, turning down, and it's uh, right now uh, turning down at a, a pace that's probably going to be recognized as a new recession within yeah. a couple of months. Yeah, well, with a tremendous amount more debt on the books as well overall, and corporate debt too has risen very dramatically as corporates have gone out and taken advantage of this cheap dollars yeah. or cheaper uh, lower interest rates to borrow to prop up their share prices and so forth. Well, John, I want to ask you one more question here. We're just on another minute or so. Alan Greenspan recently voiced concerns when he was asked what what is he watching most mostly? What index? Uh, what sort of indicator is he watching? He said M two. He said M two has been creeping up, and he's concerned about inflation. Uh, do you think he's seeing what you're seeing? Well, he, uh, there's good reason to be concerned about inflation. Uh, the Fed back, did back in 2006 uh, stop tracking M3, which is a broader measure. And some of the growth you've seen in M2 has been uh, money moving out of M3 into M2, uh-huh. um, such as the large time deposits and, 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 and such. But even with M3, you're seeing enough of... Uh, uh, of, a, of a growth rate here, uh, it's beginning actually. It's had to be beginning to pick up again last month or two. Uh, to, to be concerned about inflation, it's uh, inflation. The inflation problem will come right now with the dollar. That's where they contain the inflation uh, in the last uh, two years. That's where that's where it's going to break apart uh, next. And uh, you're already seeing it in the price of gold. Markets are anticipating what's happening here. Uh, look at gold. Gold's your ultimate hedge here against what's going to happen to the uh, purchasing power of the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to thank you very much, John. That is about all the time we have. I want to have you come back and so we can talk to you more at length about what's going on in the economy. I know one of your issues uh, in the past has been this whole demographic uh, mess that we're getting ourselves in with the younger, with an older and older population. Uh, baby boomers now starting to suck the life out of the uh, out of the economy, in essence, no longer producing and so forth. When that's another issue, but I just want to get your thoughts on this because what uh, one last real quick question 
what is the timing then? I mean, I guess it's impossible to say. What I see with Michael Oliver's blow-off scenario, uh, T-bonds, you know, just blowing off here, uh, interest rates collapsing, and at some point, if there is a turnabout, uh, which seems to happen after these blow-offs, then it tells me that we could be getting fairly close to some very dramatic action here in the markets. Your thoughts? I I would bet on the near term as opposed to the long term. Just look at the, the, the Fed behavior. Yeah. Go back a month or two. Yeah. Oh, we're going to raise rates next month. Going to raise rates uh, two months. Uh, they, 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 you know, both, they never both do. Like All of a sudden, they backed off. Almost panic. We can't yeah. do it. Can't yeah. Like that. They know what's happening. They don't have a way out. They wish they did. Um, they're going to do what, that. What they will do is what is ever necess- whatever is necessary to keep the banking system afloat. It means quantitative easing. It means debasement of the dollar. It means higher inflation. They'll take that over losing the banking system anytime. All right. Well, thank you very much for your thoughts, John. And uh, we will have you back again sometime if you're able, willing and able to come on. So, sure, Jim. Uh, thank you very much for having me. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, folks, don't go away. Um, coming up next, Michael Oliver will be with us to talk about uh, his latest views, his technical views on uh, the debt markets and the equity markets, gold, precious metals. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Michael Oliver. Oren Resources is a Canadian-based gold exploration company focused on the company's flagship Committee Bay Project, located in northern Canada, one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. The company's current resource, outlined by drilling thus far, stands at 1.1 million ounces of gold at over 8 grams per ton. Oren is operated by the same team that founded Asenko Gold, which is constructing a major gold mine in West Africa, and Caden Resources, which was recently purchased in November for over $200 million. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rea Uranium project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me, once again, my favorite technical analyst, Michael Oliver. And I would uh, say, before we say hello to Michael, I want you to go to OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com, to learn more about Michael and his work. Well, thanks for joining me again, Michael. Oh, great to be back, Jay. You know, you, uh, a, a year ago or so, you started talking about some major tectonic shifts and one was the T-bonds. Now, that wasn't going to be the first one that saw any kind of a move. Um, 
But we, you know, you took a look at the S and P 500 for the stock market, uh, gold and silver. Well, the precious metals, you looked at commodities as a whole. I think you looked at the Japanese yen. These are some of the major markets that you were looking at, and most of them have turned out uh, pretty much exactly as you've, uh, as you've expected, with the exception of the S&P 500, which we want to get into in a, in a moment or two. But to me, Michael, the one that makes more sense, the one that's most important, the one I'm most concerned about, is the T-bond market. And you started talking about a blow-off phase for T-bonds, and then, as you noted, when you get a blow-off phase, you usually get a reaction, an opposite move uh, that signals some, side, some sort of a major turning point. And I'm remembering when I uh, paid 17.5% for my first mortgage, I'm remembering when we had T-bond rates at 50, 15%. And um, uh, the world was an awful lot different than it is now. You got actually rewarded for savings. Uh, and we've had this sort of downhill run, which really provided a lot of fuel for stocks over a long period of time. But, but you could make it, and people did make an awful lot of money in the bond market. Now we're seeing, a, a, you know, potentially a major reversal. So to me, your call for a blow-off in the T-bond market is one of the most important calls that I think you've ever made, at least since I've been following you. What are your thoughts now? We see the T-bonds falling a little bit today, so going against your, your trend here, the noticeable blow-off or a noticeable rise in T-bond rates, uh, not uh, in T-bonds itself and a decline in rates, but where do you see things going now, Michael? Well, once uh, I watch the T-bond futures. It's 30-year debt, okay? Okay. Um, this is to a less extent in the 10 years, for example. But the 30-year clearly has entered a blow-off on the price charts and my long-term momentum charts, meaning that its normal definition of excess, for example, on a price chart, you've got a channel that you can plot going back to 2003 that the thing is lived within. It's an uptrending channel. We blew through the top of that in a tantrum as we crossed through 170 a month or so ago. Shot up as high as a high in the mid ones uh, up to 177 in 11.30 seconds, I think, this week. Now you backed off into the 173s. You're still outside the top of the channel, meaning you're still in the blow-off phase. I don't think this pullback ends the blow-off. I think it's just a dip within the blow-off. A blow-offs usually don't last long. You know, a month or two or three maybe um, and uh, of this kind. And, and they, they mark the end of something. And with my work on momentum structure long-term, annual, quarterly of the T-bonds, and by assessing the price chart, putting all that together, it tells me once this blow-off is over and they fall back down into that channel, they will collapse. And I think it will be equivalent to what we'll call a bond crash at that time. Uh, I could see yields on the 30-year, which is now still above 2, I believe, drop below 2% which is still a nice rate compared to most long-term debt around the world. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and then go to 4% rapidly. Wow. Once the blow-off top is completed and you, the first collapse could easily take you, could double rates from less than 2 to about 4% in the first leg of decline. Now, 4% is no big deal, you know, historically. But to change abruptly... Uh, rates by doubling them uh, over a short period of time, the long end, the end that the government doesn't really control as well, uh, will have earth-shaking effects. What will cause that? I think the causative factor for bond top and higher rates is simply the emergence of the commodity asset class back to the upside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's already beating stocks. You can take the Bloomberg Commodity Index or the uh, Reuters Jeffries and then plot them against the S&P on a spread basis and measure it carefully. You'll see they've broken out meaning they're beating the S&P. 
and they're beating it in a way that is uh, argues an emergence of a longer-term trend, not just a couple months of, of uh, outperformance. If that's the case, and money is being moved by investors, relatively speaking, out of stocks and into commodities, and you look at any commodity right now and look how much up on the year it is, uh, like uh, let's take a commodity sector like XLE, the energy sector. It's up 15% on the year. What's mm-hmm. the S&P up? Less than five? Okay. Th- mm-hmm. Just in six months, there's been a 10% profit if you were long XLE short the S&P, even though the mm-hmm. S&P went up. Similarly, uh, gold miners are up over 100% compared to S&P up five. Uh, you know, some people w- would like that kind of return over a 10-year period. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> The, the point being, you'd almost throw darts at commodities uh, or, or sectors of, of the commodities and their related stocks and find vastly outperforming situations. That, I think that most investors have yet to really realize that the commodity upturn means business. Mm-hmm. That it's not just an mm-hmm. uh, oversold rally in an old bear market that's going lower, that it's actually the beginning of a bull market. And once that perception hits... That will probably be about coincidental with the bond market ending its blow-off and, and collapsing. Right. And of course, you can take your guess as to what the S&P will do with that. I think bonds and the S&P will, will join at the hip again. Instead right. of being opposite, I think they'll be in sync. Yeah, well, uh, I suppose then what you're talking about is the potential for some real commodity, uh, some inflation if, if commodities yes. start to rise. But here's the question I have for you, Michael, and I know that you approach the world, you're very knowledgeable about fundamentals for sure, but your work is technical, and you don't allow your perception of fundamentals to get in the way of the technical. So you're confident about this commodity bull market is for real. It's not just a, a head fake or some sort of a uh, oversold situation, you're saying. And you're confident because of your momentum work, right? Right, correct. Uh, momentum and, uh, to a lesser extent, price. And that's one of the reasons, I think, that most people, when they look at a price chart, uh, other than gold, which is quite strong, but uh, let's say if the commodity basket, uh, either with the indexes I mentioned, Bloomberg or, or the other one, uh, they don't quite see it yet. You know, the price chart doesn't d- demonstrably state, I'm a bull now. Yeah. When I run momentum studies of that price action, long-term momentum studies, mm-hmm. annual momentum, for example, uh, they clearly state, no, I'm a bull. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the warning. Usually momentum will move first, and then you know, some months later or weeks later, price will engage and follow its own momentum shadow, as it were. And, uh, and that's when the public and investors and analysts will suddenly say, oh, my God, we've really got inflation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you, know, you can imagine what that will do to long-term debt yields. Right. And, and then, but the, the, the thinking now, of course, on the part of most people is, well, the Fed can certainly handle that. The Fed can certainly knock commodity prices down. But I guess in order to do that, they might have to raise rates really high. Or, mm-hmm. the, you know, there's this notion that, that there's still this notion of the omniscient Fed that can do anything at once, the omnipotent and omniscient Fed that can do anything at once. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the propaganda has, a, has a, a lot of people believing that they saved the day in 2008, 2009, and therefore... We should just put our, our faith in the, in the Fed. But I, it seems to me that what you're saying, your momentum work is saying, and price and momentum, uh, and you look at structures as well, of course, and that that's saying, no, 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 the Fed, there's going to be a point when they cannot control this thing. They cannot keep interest rates subdued and down. They cannot control the commodity markets, right? Right. I think we're already there, actually. I just think that the public perception of that is not pervasive enough yet. I think there's some smart folks out there for fundamental and technical who realize the Fed really is, you know, the, the gun's empty. 
and yeah. it's all bluff now. Uh, and it, they can't uh, manipulation. They're exhausted. Uh, and if they, I, I argue if they do a QE again and create more liquidity, once the performance trend is changed in a way that the average investor realizes that commodities beat stocks, if they QE, that money's going into commodities. Yeah. That liquidity will not go to stocks like it did in 2011 and 12, 13. Uh, yeah. That was investors' choice. The, the, the Fed, the central banks create rivers of money, but they don't necessarily direct where those flows go. The investor ultimately has that choice. And as I read the spread changes, what th- that, that is actually telling me that smart investors are already making the shift out yeah. of stocks and into commodities, and they've been vastly rewarded for six months now. Um, you, like I said, you know, the percentages are in, enormous, uh, the gains of commodity-related stocks versus the S&P. Mm-hmm. And remember, the S&P is a distorted index, too, and the NASDAQ 100 is not up on the year. Yeah. Okay, that's a blue-chip index. <laughs> and then most, of the commo- most of the equity markets around the world are, are not doing that well, right, or, or no, down. That's right. It's the S&P is really the I, – I think some of the argument that it, uh, people are now – realizing is that, well, there's so many things that are shaken up around the world, particularly in Europe. There's a lot of uncertainty. Therefore, a lot of foreign money is plowing itself into the U.S. stock yeah. market. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and it's willy-nilly. Well, when you get that kind of buying that's chasing buying, yeah. hold your yeah. nose type of buying, uh, that's, the, that's at the tail end of something. That's not the beginning of something. Yeah, very interesting point. Well, certainly, um, you know, the S&P 500 uh, was one of those one of those major tectonic moves that you that hasn't really cooperated at least in a mm-hmm. timely fashion with your views would you care to comment what what went wrong and do you think you might be wrong is, is it possible well, that somehow the S&P could really you know you could be completely wrong and we're going on to a new bull market in the S&P uh, I, I can't buy that. I could buy, I'd call it a 10% chance, okay? Mm-hmm. A very slim chance. It better damn well do really well this month. It better get up and close, up close to 2200 at the end of the month, trade as high as 2225. It better not come up here and make a new high like it just did. And then uh, fiddle around for a week or two and waste the month. Uh, uh-huh. Because the, there's also time factors involved in a lot of these momentum studies. And I think mm-hmm. the clock is ticking. They've got to go through... Uh, the the goalposts, and if they don't do the get through the numbers that I've specified, I think this is a tease. It's a false price breakout, and it will fail. Uh, fortunately, in our uh, to our subscribers at the, at the February lows, we put out a report warning after the 230 point drop in January February, which we we did call that if you were short, you better hedge up because there could be a rally that could take away your profits. We prefer. Uh, and we're not money managers nor investment advisors. We analyze markets. Uh, that I think spread positions are where to be, meaning long assets and short assets, even like short S and P fifty percent, long energy stocks, long mm-hmm. material basic material stocks, long gold stocks, such that you really have a market quote neutral position where you're long the good stuff and short the stuff that's less good or outright weak. And that mm-hmm. position, you can sleep with at night. It's not a net yeah. short. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, a good, yeah. that's a good strategy. We do like to sleep well at night, that's for sure. Well, uh, Michael, with about two minutes left here, uh, like your comment on gold, you've, you've already commented on it, but I see gold and, and silver is really outperforming gold now. Gold is, isn't doing badly. I think today it's, it's down a bit, but, but silver has been creeping up uh, on a day when gold is down a little bit. Silver is, is creeping up. 
this is what you've expected, though, I believe, in a bull market, a precious metals bull market, is once it really got underway, silver would outperform gold, right? Mm-hmm. And it is doing so, and it's done it with a thunderbolt like a week or two ago where uh, silver basically popped $2, while gold went up a bit. But, I mean, the percent gain for silver was enormous. Well, when you d- do a long-term spread study of the silver relationship to gold, you'll see that that was a breakout. Uh, and clearly silver is now the better place to be if you want to own the metal itself than gold. Uh, gold miners, of course, are, or as we expected, are handily beating both. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and I think we'll continue to do that for foreseeable future. Well, there's some nice silver mining stocks, too, though, that might actually beat some right. gold mining stocks. I mean, there's not Correct. that many of them, but we do follow a few of them in uh, Jay Taylor's gold energy and tech stocks. So I put in a shameless plug for my newsletter. Oh. Um, Michael, anything else And um, anything else you'd like to comment on today? Now, oh, yeah, quickly? one other thing, the uh, euro. Um, we had the drop yeah. after the Brexit. The, the, the BP got whacked the most. The euro yeah. got whacked pretty good, but if you'll... Look carefully at the euro. It only fell halfway back into a one-year range that it's been stuck in. It oh. fell down to around 110, 111 area. If that currency, if I'm looking at euro futures, uh, gets back up around 112 again, it's only a one cent above where it is now, next week, if it gets there. I've got some near-term stuff that says it's breaking out upside, and if, you, if that breakout is sufficient to get the euro futures back above 114 and a half, especially closer to 115 on a weekly closing basis, it's going to break out upside and have a large move, much like the yen has had uh, over the last six months. The yen went from 80, although we're at the 101, I'm talking futures now, um, mm-hmm. or 83 to uh, uh, 101 as a huge move for the yen. But the problem is the yen is only about 17% of the dollar index. Right. The euro is 57% of the dollar index. So if you're concerned right. about the dollar, watch the euro. Because if right. that thing turns a penny or two, I think it could run a three or four. And if it runs three or four, it's going to run 10 or 15. And Very that would be an enormous whack for the uh, dollar index. For the which dollar fits, index, and I think, of course. what your, your prior guest was talking about. Yeah, indeed. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, so we'll keep our eye on 114.5 to 115 for the year, I guess, right? And Correct. That's a, that's a major level. level uh, we, we, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. very, very okay. interesting. All right, well, always, always good stuff. Thank you so much, Michael, for being with us, and we'll look to do it again next week if possible. Thank you, so, Jay. Uh, thanks again for being with us. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for this sector, but uh, for this segment, I should say Dr. Ron Paul will be with us, uh, and he's going to talk about some of Greenspan's remarks about inflation and also about a return to the gold standard. So uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Dr. Ron Paul. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned near-surface Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. TriMetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. TriMetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. TriMetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. Brazil Resources Incorporated is developing projects with a total of 10 million ounces of gold resources. 
These acquisitions were made at discounted prices during the recent commodities market downturn. The company is a go-to name for leverage to the rising gold price among institutions and analysts. It is also exploring the highly prospective Rhea Uranium Project with JV partner Arriva in the western Athabasca Basin. Get to know this exciting company now by visiting brazilresources.com. TSXV, BRI, OTCQX, BRIZF. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I am happy to have a former Republican presidential candidate and a former Texas congressman, Dr. Ron Paul, back with me for a second week in a row. My discussion with Dr. Paul was pre-recorded on June 29th, and I was fortunate to speak with him at that time when he was not nearly as rushed as in the past when he was in Congress. So our discussion went on for about 45 minutes, which meant I had enough time and wisdom with this premier champion of liberty that I could have him on as a guest again this week. The remainder of my discussion with Dr. Paul dealt with his response to comments recently made on Bloomberg Television by former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan regarding the chairman's suggestion that he is concerned that we are now facing some very serious inflation problems in the not-too-distant future. And he was also suggesting to Tom Keene and the other co-hosts that uh, the world would be better if, uh, if we were on a gold standard. Have a listen now to what Dr. Paul told me on June 29th with regard to Greenspan's remarks and more. Uh, I'd like to just bring up uh, some comments that Alan Greenspan made last week. Uh, he was on Bloomberg to discuss this uh, horrible, uh, this horrible event, uh, that, according to Bloomberg and other mainstream people, called Brexit. Uh, why was it happening? And he said that we have to stop treating the symptoms and go to the real cause, as you just suggested that we need to do. He, he pointed to a lack of productivity, which maybe is in line with what you were just talking about. Uh, and and uh, this entitlement program, which he says is just really, really hurting us badly. He noted that uh, entitlements are already consuming all of our savings. And in other words, uh, there is no net savings in the economy. In connection with that discussion, he, he opined that, and I'd quote Alan Greenspan, he says, if, if we went back on a gold standard and adhered to the actual structure of the gold standard as it existed, say, prior to 1913, it would be fine. Remember that the period from 1870 to 1913 was one of the most progressive periods economically that we have had in the United States, and that was the golden period of the gold standard. So I'm known as a gold bug, and everyone laughs at me, but I mean, why do central banks own gold now? And then Tom Keene basically cut him off. I think Keene was uncomfortable with the discussion, took a break, and that was the end of that conversation. But uh, to to what extent, if any, do you think that uh, either... Any of the presidential candidates uh, understand or even know that that we were prosperous during that time. Do you think they're focused that that the gold standard might have had anything to do with it? I, I doubt that any of these guys have any understanding of that. Do they? 
No, I think if you've asked a generalized question, what period of time uh, uh, was most prosperous for economic growth in this country, uh, could you describe what period it was? I, I don't think uh, you'd get uh, five people out of the U.S. Congress and the Senate and presidential candidates that would come up with even an answer close to that. So it's, a, it, it's actually not being taught in schools. Mm-hmm. You know, this would be, uh, we're taught that uh, Alexander Hamilton is our hero. Yeah. Who, who started undermining the monetary system in Jefferson immediately and talked about central banking. So they do know about Alexander Hamilton, but they wouldn't know about, about this period. But the other thing that was interesting about Greenspan, you know, is, is, is this idea about gold. And I keep thinking, you know, I was exposed to Greenspan because I was a subscriber to the Ayn Rand Objectivist Newsletter in the 60s. And, and uh, of course, uh, Greenspan was a participant in that group, and he wrote some fantastic articles, you know, on gold. And so when he gets into the office uh, of the Fed, uh, he doesn't do anything about it. And I, I got to know him, uh, you know, by through committee work. Uh, but now that he's out again, all of a sudden he's talking, you know, sense, <laughs> sense again. But you do, you do remember the conversation I had with Bernanke when I asked him if gold is money. And uh, he said, no, it's not money. But, uh, the, but then I asked him that question that you mentioned. Yeah. Well, why do the central banks hold the gold then? They, right. they probably know what we know, uh, but they think they can get away with this theft for as, you know, a long time. And, and when the time comes where they have to restore common sense there, they're going to need the gold. So I imagine they'll be in on a take there as well. Greenspan uh, also voiced a concern in that very same interview about inflation. And I know you and I have talked about inflation in the past. You are an inflationist. And Greenspan said, uh, pointed to the rise in M2 over the past several months. He, he mentioned it's growing at something like 6 or 7%. And he mentioned there's a very strong correlation between M2 and, uh, and inflation. And then he also noted that there are many times in history when money supply is growing, but there's no obvious inflationary. Uh, reaction to it, but then he notes that suddenly, uh, in times like this, uh, there is uh, inflation that suddenly rears its ugly head. Do you, do you share Dr. Greenspan's concerns? I, I'm, I'm betting that you do. Oh, yeah. Even though it, prices seem to have been subdued for quite some time, that we could be facing a horrendous inflationary future. Well, yeah, I, I agree that the price inflation of consumer products, uh, even though they say they're not going up, I think they're going up more than uh, more than they admit. But it's certainly not like the 1970s that you recall, mm-hmm. because it was, they sure. went up at a rate of 15%. And his prediction that it eventually will spill over, that's when there will be no more denial. But from the Austrian viewpoint, uh, when the money supply increases, and that's it, you have inflation. And they don't like to talk about waiting for price levels to go up, the CPI or PPI, something goes up. So if the money supply goes up, uh, you, you know, it will have an effect. But what they're saying is it surprises some people. They did it in the 20s, too. There was a, uh, Productivity was high, so the price levels of consumer goods did not go up. And they said, well, this is good. We don't have to worry about a bubble. But the bubbles are still there. And if you look back over these last decade or so, we had tremendous price inflation in the houses. If you look at housing prices today for rich people, millions and millions of dollars in yachts and things. So there's a tremendous price inflation. But where the real price inflation is the price of a bond, 
month. I mean, uh, that is the biggest, that I think much bigger bubble than we had in 08 and 09. So in, in a way, the, in, the inflation of the money supply is goes in different areas. But what Greenspan is saying, well, eventually it's going to be very noticeable and it will even go after those conventional measurements of inflation. And I certainly agree with that. What happens if we start seeing some real serious price inflation now, Dr. Paul, with a bond market with interest rates at the levels they're at now, suppose that uh, the people that save money are going to demand a higher return, a higher rate of interest, uh, what's that going to do to an over-indebted economy like ours? That's when the ball game has ended. That's the end of the ball game, and, yeah. and the charade goes on. Because once the momentum builds like that, that means, the re- and, and it probably will be not you and I or some uh, American citizen who's looking for more money on their CDs. Uh, we have no clout. Uh, but it's disgusting that we punish the people who want to take care of themselves and they save and they get zero or negative interest rate. So no, it'll be somebody overseas that it could be the Chinese. So there are political reasons to, uh, that there's motivation to try to punish us, or just economic uh, good sense to say, I don't need any more dollars. Uh, so during this next recession that I think has already started, uh, there may be some people, so we're going to have a recession, uh, depression, at the same time interest rates are going up, uh, it's, it's going to be uh, cataclysmic the way I see it, because, and I think what you're referring to is what will the cost of government be? I mean, that, there's been some calculations that if you took zero rate interest rates or 0.5 and it goes up one point or two points, I mean, the amount of dollars out there because the debt is so big and then the, the future uh, borrowing power, this will scare people off. And, and one reason, though, so far, people haven't avoided the dollar, just like uh, last week, people rushed to the dollar, you know, with the con- conflict in, in Europe. But uh, eventually the time will come and it's unpredictable when that comes. But uh, I think I think the ball game will be over, and there will be monetary reform. That will be that should be the only thing that will get us back uh, on a steady hand again. Well, I oftentimes have a historian, F. William Angdahl, as a guest on this show, and uh, he's the author of a wonderful book I called The Gods of Money. Uh, he, he points out that the Chinese and the Russians and other countries are building what is known as the, the New Silk Road, or it has a different name now. I've, I've forgotten what it is right now. But it's really a, it's some infrastructure that's being built that links China and Russia and India and all the way over to, uh, to Eastern Europe, into Eastern Europe. Uh, and, and Chinese and the Russians, and of course the Indians have always been lovers of gold, are building huge amounts of gold. Uh, they, uh, the Russians are the fourth largest producer, the Chinese the largest producer, but it seems as though most of the West's gold has been flowing to China or to the East by way of Switzerland. Uh, do, you, do you think that perhaps somewhere down the road, uh, those countries, even though they don't seem to be very much free market orientated, might be in a position monetarily to put pressure on the United States in one way or another, I think you might have hinted at it a moment ago, uh, to go back to some sort of mo- honest monetary system? 
Well, that's the only only option that uh, will be available. It's happened so many times over history. You have to go back to something and convince the people that you're going to quit the printing presses and go back to something sound. I do think it will come from the Far East, uh, more likely than ours. I remember very clearly it was around 2000 and, and gold at that time was down around $300 an ounce. And uh, the British uh, uh, the Central Bank was selling gold. And I remember, I think I was asking Greenspan, I said, why are that I said, this doesn't seem to be very smart for people to be, for the Central Bank in, in Britain to be selling gold. And, and his, he dismissed it. He said, well, no, they know what they're doing. They're smart people or something like that. Yeah. It's just thinking that, that, that the West was selling gold and the British was selling gold at $300 an ounce. And then, goes, then not too long afterwards, it goes up to $1,800. So. Right. No, I think, I think the shift is to the East. All right, so I'd like to transition just for a few minutes, and we only have a few minutes left, unfortunately. But uh, from monetary policy to uh, to foreign policy, because that is the focus of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, you know very well how connected it is between monetary policy. We spoke of that briefly, but um, help us understand the connection. And, and our foreign policy... We're supposed to declare war. Congress is supposed to declare war. The people's branch of the government is supposed to be connected, and that's the branch that's supposed to is supposed to declare war. But we seem to be going off. I guess it's possible to to engage in wars all the time because you have all this free money floating around, right? You know, uh, there's always a motivation for the special interest to uh, maybe sell weapons that we don't need, and uh, uh, nobody can stop them from building the F-35, and that's a $1.3 trillion boondoggle. Uh, but they couldn't do that if there uh, wasn't the inflation and printing money. Uh, all wars, I believe, are financed one way or other by inflation, the destruction of currency. Every once in a while, in ancient times, they were able to do it for a while by just stealing the gold of the countries they, they take over. Uh-huh. But even that could cause a problem if there was a sudden influx of tons and tons of gold, that it would be a distortion. So, so inflation helps support the people who want to fight wars for various reasons or, and for the people who just want to make profits. So if you had a sound monetary system and people had to either be taxed or loaned the money, there would be a lot of restraint on this. Uh, if people realize how much it would have cost uh, in the trillions and trillions of dollars to get involved, you know, uh, since 9-11 over in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and all these countries, and we continue on and on, it wouldn't happen. It's sort of like there wouldn't have been a housing bubble if there wouldn't have been easy money, and there wouldn't have been our mis- you know, our ability to do these things would uh, not be there. In the Soviet system, we didn't have to fight uh, and it collapsed, but it was a monetary reason, and an economic reason they went broke, and and, and that's the way this will all end, uh, because unfortunately we're not going to next month or next year with the new administration all of a sudden have sound uh, foreign policy and economic policy and monetary policy. It's not going to happen. But economic law is very, very powerful. I just think of how, how long we knew that the $35 an ounce fixed uh, price under the Bretton Woods would not last. And finally, the market overwhelmed, and they had to close it down mm-hmm. because the real price of gold was much, much higher, and it caused quite a lot of chaos in the 70s. So I think that that will happen again. The markets will react and, and 
overwhelm. Uh, but for the meantime, they're going to grab what they can, uh, whether it's used to force of our military power. But you mentioned the key to this. It'd be a lot less if our country had stuck with this whole notion of never going to war without uh, a type of a consent from the people through a vote by the representatives in, in, in the Congress. And since World War II, I'm just astounded to think back uh, at the time of, of uh, Truman. Short time after World War II, we get this United Nations designed for peace, and our whole country goes to war, and we lose about 40,000 Americans in a war that was undeclared, and we're still there in Korea, mm-hmm. and there's still division in, Cuba, in, in, in Korea. And just think about Vietnam. We wasted a lot of money and lives there, and we finally lose and we leave. Now it's an integrated country, far from perfect, but at least we go there, we trade, we travel. <laughs> and so I've always argued that much more can be achieved in peace than in war. But uh, unfortunately, the American people listen to the propaganda. And that's more or less been my goal is to try to compete with the propagandists about promoting bad economic and foreign policy. I should mention to my listeners a foreign policy of freedom by Dr. Paul, uh, peace, commerce, uh, an honest friendship, I guess, is what you're talking about, Dr. Paul. And and with respect to your uh, Institute for Peace and Prosperity, I know Daniel McAdams has talked on this show many times about uh, the NGOs like uh, George Soros sponsors, uh, Victoria Newland, and others who were involved in overthrowing governments and trying to overthrow governments and color revolutions and so on and so forth. Um, what is it that your institute is trying to accomplish? What are what are you trying to do with the Institute for Peace and Prosperity? Well, it's uh, it's a 501c3, which means it's an educational group, and it is to convert the people away from the blind acceptance of interventionism in foreign affairs and follow more of the admonition of the founders that talked about non-entangling alliances, mind our own business, and have free trade and friendship with country. And uh, that, that was our tradition. We've never done a good job on that, but we work on is trying to establish that principle that uh, this is a good good way to go. One thing that I think we have done uh, uh, over the years is we've dispelled or removed this negative connotation, and they still use it against us. They'll call Ron, boy, you're just nothing more than an isolationist. You yeah. don't want to deal with the world. Well, you know, in a way, free uh, market people are globalists, but we right. want to do it without coercion. We want to do it voluntarily, and we want to do it with a sound currency. That will bring people together. But this idea that we want to, you know, Put fences around and lock us in. You know, lock us in. Now, I think uh, Jefferson was very clear that uh, the, the more free trade and travel that we have, uh, the better the world would be, and that'd be a road to peace. Now that we now that we trade with China, we're a lot less likely to fight them. When I was in high school, we were fighting and killing each other. You know, but but now that that is bad. And some of these times when we, but what I what bothers me is this obsession with the neocons right now. Just looking, trying to start a fight with Russia right now. Yeah. Having military exercises on the border of Russia, that would be like Russia having military exercises on the Mexican border. You know, what would we think about that? Yeah. So, uh, yes, yeah, that's what I want to emphasize is a non-intervention foreign policy. So uh, things like NAFTA or TPP, uh, they are sold as being free trade agreements. 
they're, they're not. It's managed trade to protect the interests of the very wealthy, and you don't need thousands and thousands of pages of regulation where you can appeal to find out if you can put on tariffs. So no, and and that's that, that's a myth that they're free trade agreements. They, I vote against all those. I don't believe in more government. I, I think government should be smaller and and um, closer to home. So that to me is all this this move uh, on to have have a uh, new world order and one world government. Sure. Well, it's it's the propaganda and it's the way it's sold as free trade, and that's what people believe. So your institute for peace and prosperity is is all about setting out the truth. One right. final question, if okay. you could, Doctor Paul, and that is: Is there any real reason, given what we've just talked about, to celebrate the Fourth of July? We just yesterday we celebrated the Fourth of July. Uh, if in fact uh, we've turned the Constitution, or at least the Declaration of Independence, seemingly from my perspective, on its head, uh, should we abolish the Fourth of July? No, I think we should use it to emphasize the uh, efforts that the founders put into it, and they were willing to go and separate themselves from England and show us that uh, secession is not such a bad idea. Emphasize that, and uh, also to tell the people the truth, we should celebrate truth, and on the 4th of July, we ought to be honest with ourselves and not say that uh, we who might argue what we've been talking about, that we're unpatriotic, uh, and say what real patriotism is. For me, real patriotism is a willingness to work hard to understand what's going on and not to defend our government when they're wrong. And I don't think there's anything unpatriotic about that. I think it's unpatriotic to allow these people to get away with talking about uh, what we should be doing, how we want to run the world. And uh, that's where I see a great danger. So real patriotism would be to go back to the, the founders and, uh, and, and reinstitute what our country was really about and yes, what I think the Declaration, was, Declaration right. of Independence was all about. All right. Yeah. Well, well, thank you very much, Dr. Paul. I, okay. I do hope I get to, to go down there and, and visit with you and, and uh, attend your event down there. And again, folks, um, you, you go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Sign up for the, um, the September 10th uh, event uh, that I think you'll certainly have a chance to meet up with Dr. Paul and also uh, hear some very important information there. So thanks very much, Dr. Paul, for being with us, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Good. Nice to be with you. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Next week, uh, my guest will be Richard Mayberry. He's the author of the highly acclaimed Richard Mayberry U.S. and World Early Warning Report. Rick's insights into the global economy and geopolitics is always refreshing, interesting, and important, so I hope you will not miss next week. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. And thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Trimetals Mining is a growth-focused mineral exploration company creating value through the exploration and development of its 100% owned, near-surface, Gold Springs Gold Silver Project in mining-friendly Nevada and Utah. Trimetals has only drilled less than 10% of the gold targets at Gold Springs, and it already has a robust preliminary economic assessment. Trimetals believes there is a significant potential to increase the gold mineral resource through further drilling. Trimetals shares are listed on the OTCQX and the TSX under symbols TMIAF and TMI respectively. 